Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments. Who knows what the Ten Commandments are? This is pop quiz time. First commandment is what? Good. You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment was what? Don't make an idol. Excellent. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're getting it. Good. Third one was, uh, yeah, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Okay, good. Fourth one, awesome. Yeah, honor the Sabbath, right? Yeah. And then fifth one, honor your father and mother. Yeah, yeah. Your silence is telling. Good. Uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. All that good stuff. All the bad stuff. Don't covet. So Ten Commandments in the Old Testament law, and then after that, there was a bunch of other laws, right? A bunch of other laws, things like uh, don't cook a baby goat in its mother's milk, um, don't weave these two kinds of fabrics together, this is what you should and, and should not do uh, in different situations. It's called the, the, the book of the law. So all told, in the Old Testament, the Jewish believers uh, thought that there was about 613 commandments in the law. That's a bunch, right? But yeah, I think if we thought about it, we could, we could sit here and name a bunch of them. 613 commandments in the law, 365 of them, one for every day of the year. 365 of them were negative commandments, like don't do that, don't do this, right? No, these are bad things to do. And then 248 were positive commands, like do this, this is what you ought to do, this is how you ought to live. 613 in all. And so when we get to the passage where Jesus is talking to these uh, Pharisees and, and, and leaders and, and teachers of the law, lawyer rolls up and says, Jesus, out of all of these, right? You got 613 of them. Which is the most important commandment? Before all else, what ought we do? And predictably, Jesus answers with what's called the Shema. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's the greatest in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. It's pretty much a standard conversation up until this point in time. The problem is, or the tricky thing is, or the interesting thing is that Jesus does not stop there. In the same breath, he goes on to say, but wait, there's more. Kind of like a a game show host who's telling the list of prizes that you won. He says, but wait, there's more. There's actually one other thing. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. We're going to see what this one other thing is and see why when Jesus is asked for what the most important, the greatest, the before all else one is, he gives two. Okay? So Matthew 22, 34 through 40. This is God's word. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is God's word. So we looked up to verse 38 last week. We talked about how we ought not forget our first love. Before all else, we ought to love. And before anyone else, we ought to love God. And what that meant about, we could do a bunch of things and not love, but if we love, then we will do a bunch of things for God. And so people are getting excited. I mean, they're like, yeah, you know, I I do a good job. I go to church every week. I love God. I think I've got that part right. But Jesus slips in a second before that breath is done. And he says, but there's a second that's actually just like it. Why did he do that? What did he mean? What is he trying to say? At least three things that I want to mention here. But the first thing, the first thing here that we have to see is that you cannot love God 
and not love your neighbor. This is hard stuff because people, when they hear, love the Lord your God, they kind of assume that from the Old Testament reading. And so they're starting to pat themselves on the back and say, I did a good job. I'm doing all right. right? I'm loving God. I'm following his commands. I'm going to the synagogue or church or wherever it is every week. And I'm doing the things that I ought to do. But before Jesus can move on from that, before anyone can comment on that, he says that the second is just like it. What does he mean? If you ask my daughter, Manny, our eldest, and you ask her, hey, what is your favorite earthly possession? What is your favorite toy in all of the world? It's the one thing in life that you want more than anything else. She will say, my mung mung. Ask her. She'll say, my mung mung. That's her little dog. She got a stuffed animal dog on her first birthday, and she's slept with that every night of her life since then for almost five years. That is her most treasured possession. And then as you say to her, why do you love your mung mung? Before you could even finish saying that, she will say, but also my blanket. Because she's got this little pink blanket that her grandma made her, and she sleeps with that. She rubs it on her face. And when she's sad, she said, mung mung. <laughs> she kisses it. She says, blanket. And she rubs it on her face because she thinks that they are more emotionally available than her family members at that time. <laughs> you ask her, what's the most important earthly possession in your life, she'll say mung mung, but blanket is right behind it. And usually if she goes running after her mung mung, she's also looking for her blanket. And she said, you can't have one without the other. That's what Jesus is saying here. To the people who think, hey, you're doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right because I love God with everything within me. He says, let me ask you this next question as a litmus test of how well you think you're really loving God. Right? Do you love people? Do you loving your neighbor? here's the the picture. Here's a picture that I kind of see. You've got these people asking him, 613 commands, Jesus, what's the most important? The way I see it is you've got 613 commands all lined up in a row, right? You've got circumcision, you've got Sabbath, you've got the things that you eat, dietary laws and restrictions, love God, obey him, don't kill people. You've got all these things lined up here on, 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 on a line. A gun goes off, bam, and then they take off running, right? They're running. Oh, my gosh, circumcision is talked about so many times. Looks like circumcision is winning. Wait a second. Wait a second. Here comes all the things that you shouldn't eat. Okay, don't eat crustaceans. Don't eat jellyfish. Don't eat pigs. Don't, all these other things. Looks like dietary laws are winning. And you get to the end of it, and loving God has won. And everyone is cheering. Loving God. Love God. First place. Yeah. But second place, right behind it, loving your neighbor as yourself, yay. And everyone is cheering and everyone's applauding. We, the way we th- think about first and second place often is like this. We think about first place in a race uh, because we're Asian. We tend to think a race is a marathon, right? And a marathon, first place is way out in front of second place. Right? First place runs into the stadium. Everyone is cheering. Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. It's usually uh, an Asian man or a man from, from Africa. Right? And they're running and, and they win the race. And, and then second place enters the stadium and people are kind of clapping. Ah, oh, that's kind of cool. Unless they're family members. Yeah, it's cool. They're second place though. And first place can be way out in front of second place. You don't even have to see the second place runner to know that yeah, well, they're second place. You don't, they, don't, they don't matter. That's how we oftentimes think of first place. And second, love God, love your neighbor. But in Jesus' mind, this is what he has. He has in mind a sprint, a 40-yard dash. Where they're running, they take off 
First and second are clear that they're the top two. The other 611 are behind them. But in order to tell who won, they're so close that you have to look at it again. You have to rewind it. You got to play it. You got to rewind it, play it. You got to freeze frame. This is what they call, if you're a sprinter, they call it a photo finish. Right? You need to take a picture and then you look, at the, you look at the film. You see that first place is loving God and second place is loving your neighbor. But it's so close that you almost can't tell them apart. In fact, if you've got a picture and you've got one in the picture, then you've got the other one. If you don't have one in the picture, you don't have the other. It's like mung mung and blanket. You can't have one without the other. Saying if you say you love God, then you will love your neighbor. Says, don't go thinking that you're doing great because you lift your hands in worship and you come on Sundays faithfully every week that you serve in this and that. Don't tell me you love God if you can't love your neighbor. That's what he's saying. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. Let's break it down a little bit, can we? Can we? Jesus, you remember, he says in, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, he says, listen, check it out, right? When the Son of Man comes in all his glory, the angels of God around him, he's going to say to his people, to the righteous, hey, you know what? I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, you visited me. I was naked and you gave me clothes. They're going to say, when? When do we do that? And this is what he's going to say. He's going to say, whatever you did to the least of these, actually you did that unto me. And what you didn't do to the least of these, you ain't do to me. Because how you treat others is the clearest indication of whether you really love God or don't love him. He doesn't just just stop there. He goes on and says, hey, listen, it's so closely related that you come into worship, Matthew 7. You come into worship and you got something against somebody else. Hey, don't worship. Leave your worship at the altar. You go and you make things right with that other person as much as it's up to you. It takes two to tango, and if they don't respond to you, then you, that, that's fine. But you do what you need to do in order to get that relationship right. Don't tell me you love me if you can't love people. And that's what he's saying. Let me put it a little bit more bluntly. 1 John 4.20, okay? 1 John 4.20. This is not me. This is, this is God's word speaking. 1 John 4.20, this is what he says. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother... He is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It can't be more forceful or more clear than this. He doesn't say, if you love God but hate your brother, you're not mature. He doesn't say, if you love God and hate your brother, you've got growing to do. He doesn't say if you love God and hate your brother, you're falling away from faith. He says you're a liar. He says you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you love God, then you're going to love your neighbor. I think it's that simple. If you've got problems with people, then you've got problems here with God. It's, it's clear as day what he's saying. Don't tell me that you love God if you can't love your neighbor. That's what he's saying. That's why when they ask him for one commandment, He doesn't stop at one. He goes on and and gives a second. And what is the standard by which we're to love? How much are we supposed to love our neighbor? He says, verse 39, love your neighbor as yourself. That means, listen, there's one piece of pizza left. One piece of pizza left. Everybody's had their share, and you want that piece of pizza. And so, you know, usually we kind of wait around, look around. Anybody can grab that piece of pizza. Anyone want that piece of pizza? 
We get upset if somebody says, yeah, I want it, because they're supposed to do like you and just kind of act shy and nobody wants it. But you want that last piece, you want that last piece really badly, but somebody else swoops in and says, yeah, I would like it. What do you do? To love your neighbor as yourself means that whatever you want for yourself, you want for the person next to you. And so you let them take that piece of pizza. That's hard stuff. And as much as you want something for yourself, you want it for them. You're hungry, they're hungry, you rather have them fed than yourself because you love them the way that you love yourself. You got money, you got 20 bucks to spend, and somebody needs 20 bucks. You really want those sunglasses, those fake Ray-Bans on the beach in the Dominican Republic. You really want those, but somebody else wants those too. And what do you do? As much as you want that for yourself, you want that for somebody else. In uh, 2000, year 2000, there was, a, it was the first year that Taekwondo was introduced at the Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. This was a pr- kind of famous story. It was on uh, Oprah, uh, covered it, People Magazine, New York Times. There's uh, two girls, a 20-year-old girl named Esther Kim and her best friend Kay Poe. Uh, they were from uh, Texas. I forget if it was Dallas or Houston. But they were uh, world champions. They were like champions in their, in their, in their class. And so... In any given year, they would have both made the Olympics, but the United States Olympic Committee decided that that year only one person was going to go to the Olympics. And so their lifelong dream, they trained together. Esther's dad was their, was their master, trained them, groomed them so that they could both make it to the Olympics. And so they get to the semifinals, and Esther wins her semifinal match, and she's in. And then Kay, during the sem- semifinal match that she's in, she breaks her kneecap, right? Busts her kneecap. But somehow she manages to win on points, and advances to the final. So here's the deal. You got this girl, Esther, and you got this girl, Kay. And both of them should be going to the Olympics, but they're only going to take one of them. And so here's your dilemma, right? Who are you going to take? It's simple. It's open shut, right? The 20-year-old girl, Esther, versus the 18-year-old, Kay, with a broken kneecap, right? She can't stand up. She's writhing in pain. This is, I mean, literally, it's Karate Kid. And so... This girl, uh, this girl Kay is like, her kneecap is, is busted, and she's like, Esther, you're going to uh, gonna go to the Olympics, you know, do well and, and win. But Esther looks at her friend, and she says, how can I, I mean, basically what they need to do is they need to stand in the middle, uh, in the middle and they need to spar, and Esther's got to beat up her broken kneecap friend, right? That's basically it. Just get one point, and it's over. And she looks at her friend in pain, and she says, how could I do that? to my friend. And so what does she do? She goes to the judge and she says to the judge, I'm going to forfeit my match in order that my friend can fulfill her Olympic dream. And so Kay hears about this and she's like, that's stupid. Don't do that. That's the dumbest thing in the world. Don't do that for me. Don't give up your dreams for me. And this is what Esther said. Don't even tell me that in you going, I'm giving up my dreams. My dreams are still alive. I'm placing them in you. And so she signs the card, and they go to the middle of the mat. They bow to each other. They bow to the judges. And they announce the decision of what's happened. And everyone starts crying. And the two of them weep together as they hug on the middle of the floor. And at the end in the interview, uh, Esther says, there's more than one way to be a champion. There's more than one way to be a champion. It doesn't have to be me going and winning. 
if my friend Tay goes and she wins, then I'll know that I've won also. And she gave up her lifelong dream in order that the lifelong dream of her friend could be accomplished even though she didn't deserve it. That's what it means to love someone as much as you love yourself. So the question then becomes, then who am I supposed to love in this way? Right? Who am I supposed to love in this way? Who am I supposed to love in the same way that I love myself? That's, I'm glad you asked. He says in verse 39, love your neighbor as yourself. The second thing that we see, second thing that we see is that loving your neighbor includes people it's not natural to love. It includes people that you wouldn't naturally love. Now you gotta, I mean, this is, this is a big deal because I know that, that some of us do have people in our lives that we would love in this way, the same way we love ourselves. I, uh, the other day, my, uh, my son and daughter Manny and Elijah, they wanted to eat um, classic Korean soup, oxtail soup, and they love eating rice and soup and the oxtail meat, and so they want us to take it off the bone so that they can just scoop it out and eat it. So they're eating it because they're like their mom and they love eating meat. And so they said, can we have more soup? And so right when I was about to eat dinner, I said, sure, I'll get you guys some more soup. And they said, oh, we want more meat, please, also. So I looked in there and there was just a, a little bit of meat left because they had carnivorously torn it all up. And so I took it out and I poured it in and I gave them as much meat as I could. And I poured my soup in and I sat down and they looked at mine and all I had was soup. And they looked at theirs and they had soup. And they had meat, and they were so excited. Why? Because as much as I want to eat meat, I love my children because I'm an awesome dad, right? No, don't do that. Uh, because I love my children, I wanted to love them as I love myself. That's what love does. Right? Because we all have people in our lives that we would love in that way, don't we? But who does Jesus say we ought to love in that way? Because if it's really true... You know, Mr. Rogers, and you know Daniel Tiger, won't you be na- my neighbor? I would love for you to be my neighbor. That's what they sing at the beginning of every show. Would you be my neighbor? If we could really ask and choose and pick who our neighbor was, man, this would be easy. It'd be game over. I would choose, man, I would choose the people that it's easy for me to love. People who are, are nice and kind, they give me things, I choose to love them. I can love them as myself any day of the week. But who does Jesus say? That's, that's the question that in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, they say, Jesus, who, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story because, you know, the ancient Jewish mind, the people that were living in the time of Jesus, they had a clear understanding of who their neighbor was. Okay, to a Jewish person, rabbinical tradition said, this is your neighbor, a fellow Jew or a convert to Judaism. That's your neighbor. These are the people that you need to love. Anyone outside of the Jewish race or outside of the Jewish faith is an enemy of God. So you don't need to be nice to them. In fact, to be nice to them is to do a disservice to God. That's what they thought in their mind. Right? It was wrong, but that's what they thought. So Jewish people and Jude- uh, people who follow Judaism, these are my neighbors. So they asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, wanting to justify himself as with it. He begins to tell this story. You know the story, the Good Samaritan. About 15 to 17 mile journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They called it the bloody way because a lot of times people would get beat up and jumped. It was very scary. It's like walking through 15 miles of a dark alley in the deepest inner city right, where 
uh, scary people hang out. So you never usually walk this way alone. But this cat, apparently he was, or the story doesn't tell. But he's walking down this road to Jericho, and he gets jumped, predictably, gets beat up. All this stuff gets taken. He's stripped naked, left for dead. As he's lying there on the side of the road, unconscious, Jesus says a priest walks by. A priest in that time is high class. He's got his own donkey probably, high class, most likely coming from Jerusalem because he'd been doing his temple duty, doing his religious duty, doing the things that he should have been doing. And he's riding his donkey by and he sees this guy on the side of the road. And maybe, probably, what commentators say, what goes through his mind is, I should help this guy out. But you know what? If I do, the law says I can't go near somebody who's bleeding. If I go near somebody who's bleeding, then I will become defiled and ceremonially unclean. Then I'll have to go outside the temple gates. I'll have to go outside the city gates. Everyone will know that I'm defiled. I'll have to go through a period of ritual cleansing, and I'll be humiliated. Besides, I just did my religious duty. So he walks on by. The next guy comes, he's a Levite. A Levite, not a priest, it says. He's clear about that. A Levite is kind of like a lay priest. He's a, he does priestly duties in the temple, but he's not a full-time priest. He's got other jobs, but he helps out. So he's kind of a spiritual guy also. Now, again, commentators will say that when you walk on the road on the bloody way, you always know who's on the road with you. You always inquire. You always ask in case you need help. So most likely, the Levite knew that the priest had gone before him. And so as the Levite is walking along, he sees a guy on the side of the road. And he reckons to himself, and he says, you know what? Priest was here, but he ain't do anything about it. He ain't do anything. So why should I do anything about it? You see how important it is that leaders understand the call to love? I mean, you don't love, then your people who follow you ain't going to love. You're molding and creating a culture by how you do or do not love, by how you treat the person that you think is disgusting, how you treat the person you think is, is, is awkward, how you treat the person you think is despised, how you treat the person you think is undeserving. Now, what kind of culture are you creating? Because you see, at the end of the day, churches don't die because the buildings fall apart or the carpet begins to peel or there's stains on the carpet. Churches die because churches fail to love. How do you treat the person who walks in for the first time? Whose responsibility is that? Doesn't matter. You get emotional during songs of worship. Doesn't matter. You get moved in your heart. You hear the word. How do you treat the person who's different from you? How do you treat the person who you think doesn't deserve my love? Is that why? How, what do you do when we stand for, uh, for the beginning of worship service and we greet people? How do you treat? Where do you go? Who do you go to? Do you talk to the people that are new that you don't think anybody knows? Do you go to the people on the fringes? How do you treat people? Because how you treat people is the clearest indication of whether you understand the love of God or not. He's not saying this is the greatest commandment for extroverts. This is the greatest commandment for people lovers. He's saying this is the greatest commandment for every person who says they follow Christ. You don't love people, then you got it wrong in your relationship with God. He's clear. He's clear about that. And how do you treat people who are different from you? 
The third person that walks around, walks by, is a Samaritan. And Samaritans had no right, no reason, no rhyme to talk to this guy, let alone help him. Because for years and centuries, there was a built-up animosity between, um, from the Jews towards the Samaritans because the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They believed that the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were, they were sellouts. They didn't love God because they intermarried with people of other religions and other races. And so for centuries, Jews looked down on the Samaritans, even gave them a separate place to worship, said, you can't worship with us. You guys worship on that mountain. We'll worship on this mountain. And so Jesus talks about a Samaritan. And immediately the mindset of the people is this guy, okay, so you, we're going from high class to low class. That's in, in the minds of the people. You go from a priest to a Levite and then a Samaritan. Surely Samaritan's going to do nothing. But what does he do? Samaritan stops, gets down, bandages him up, gives him not only a ride, he takes him to his hotel, says he'll pay for whatever expenses. And at the end of it all, Jesus says, all right, so who is the neighbor? And so deep is the animosity and the hatred of the Jews towards the Samaritan that the Jews don't answer by saying the Samaritan. What do they say? He said, the one who showed mercy. They couldn't even get the name out. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go back to the original question. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? The reason they wanted to know who the neighbor was is because by giving them a definition, there would be a limitation. Here's your neighbor. It's these people. They say, okay, I only need to love these people. But Jesus flips the script. He says, it's not about who your neighbor is. The question is, who are you going to be a neighbor to? Don't look at who those other people are. You turn it inward in yourself. You say you know the love of God, but you can't love people. You say you love God, but you've always got relational conflict with people. You say you love God, but you can turn around and gossip about that person. You say you love God, but you have no problems casting a judgmental eye against your brother or sister. Say, don't tell me that you love God. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. Don't tell me that you love people because you're great at loving the people who are nice to you. He's saying the true test of whether you really love your neighbor is you love the people it's not natural to love. And how are you doing in that? Because you remember, these people enter the conversation patting themselves on the back saying, we're doing a good job loving God because we got the first commandment. And Jesus says, no, but there's a second. It's just like it just like it. How are you doing in how you relate to people that you don't naturally want to love? And how are you doing with that? So people, Jesus says, he says, listen, if you, this is what Jesus says, says you can love people who are good to you back, but how different are you from the rest of the world? Here's the people you got to love. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. If you really have the love of God in you, then it's not going to be how little do I have to love, but how much can I give my love away? You remember this skit that our, our mission teams do all the time. It's like this little ball of God's love, right? And it's, it's funny because the more you share God's love, the bigger your love gets, right? But you've got this one guy in the skit who doesn't want to share the love of God, right? And they, because they don't want to share the love of God, their love gets smaller and smaller and smaller until they don't have any love anymore. And we say, how silly of them, how dumb. They've got all this and they've freely gotten it. Why would they not want to give it away? Yet that's how we live, isn't it? 
We say that we've got a love greater than life itself. But we don't share it with the people who need it the most. We say that love came down and rescued me, set me free. Free to what? To love. But somehow this connection doesn't happen. It stops here. And instead of becoming a channel, it becomes simply a repository that keeps the love to ourselves. He says you can't love God and not love your neighbor, but loving your neighbor means that you'll love people that it's not natural for you to love. The third thing, before we get too depressed and go home sad, the last thing, these two greatest commandments are hard. That's why first is first. These are hard. That's why first is first. To love your neighbor the way that you love yourself, are you kidding me? To love some random guy in the street and give him my oxtail? No way. How do you do that? That's crazy. I realize that the reason why we don't do the great commandment not because we forget it all the time. Because it's the hardest thing in the world to do. How are we going to do this? Because naturally, right, each of us, you know, naturally, we have capacity within our hearts to, to love in this way a few people, a handful of people. And even that, we don't do it very well. And I can love Olive in this way. I can love Manny and Elijah Elise, I'd love some of y'all in that way. But naturally, I just don't have all that stuff in my heart to, to, to love that way. How are we going to do this? How are we supposed to do this? We could try harder to do it. Right? We could get, I mean, we, we had Goonie up there on YouTube. We could get Shia LaBeouf up here, right? And we could, ha- we could have him say, just do it. Right? You know this video? Do it. If you don't know it, Google Shia LaBeouf and just do it. It's a great motivational speech. He's like, yesterday you said you were going to do it, but you haven't done it. Just do it. And you can have him come up here and say, and you might be able to love somebody you don't love for a day, two days. But what after that? You see, the heart of Christian ethics is found not in the commands, because a principle won't change us. But you know what will? A person will. The heart of Christian ethics, right before 1 John 4.20, where he says, don't tell me you can't love God if you don't love your brother. Right before that is what he says in verse 19. We love because he first loved. The second commandment, the first commandment, so intimately related to one another. But there's a reason why first is first. Because unless you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you find in that relationship and in that love this unending fountain of love, you will not be able to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you get that, if you know that because he loved us first, then we can love, then all of a sudden you can love people you had no earthly, humanly capacity to love. 
There's a divine sense in which you love the orphan, you love the widow, you love the unborn, you love the people that kill the unborn and the orphans and the widows. There's an overwhelming sense in which you can love them and you can forgive them with a love that comes not from yourself, it comes from God. We love because he loved us first. When I was in college, the end of my uh, first year in college, I was eating Chinese food with uh, one of my buddies, Chris, and uh, we were stuffed at the end of the meal, Chinese buffet, and uh, we got our fortune cookies, got our bill, and he was eating his fortune cookie. I couldn't finish my own so full. I couldn't even eat my fortune cookie. I was going to take it home and eat it. And he said to me, Dave, one day I'm going to fall in love, and I'm going to propose to my girlfriend. I'm going to ask her to marry me. The way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to put the proposal inside of a fortune cookie. We're going to go eat at a Chinese restaurant. He's kind of cheap like this. We're going to eat at a Chinese restaurant, and she's going to open it up, and by the time she reads it, I'm going to be on my knee with a ring. I'm like, that's cool. How are you going to do that? It's before the days of the Internet. And he's like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. I'm sure you can order something like that somewhere. And he's like, I got a long time before I need to figure that out. I said, all right, it's your world. You do your thing my fortune cookie home. And, and that summer, I was living in this house. It was kind of our, our ministry house in, uh, in Virginia. And the house didn't have AC. This was in the dead of the hot, humid Virginia, just painful summer, like July. The kind of, I mean, and this, this multiple times has happened. You know, one of our, uh, one of our sophomores, Peter, Peter Han, loved, he said he loves taking a cold shower. Right? He loves taking cold showers. I don't like taking cold showers. So you take it, I mean, but I had to because it was so hot. Take a cold shower. This is the way it was. Take a cold shower because it's so hot. And I, I tell you, it didn't have AC. And I say that. Didn't have AC in the house. 90 degrees outside, hot, humid. Even at night, it's sweltering. It's brutal, painful, just dungeon-like. And so would shower, feel so good, would sit on my bed, would lay down, and then as I'm laying down to sleep, I'd start dripping sweat again. And the only recourse was quickly fall asleep so that morning could come. You know how those days are. That's the way I slept. And so this particular night after eating Chinese food with Chris, I went home and I slept to that. And I woke up all early because I was sweaty and hot and uncomfortable. And I sat down. I was like, at least I've got my fortune cookie. And so I opened up the vinyl wrapper. And to my surprise, that fortune cookie was mushy. Not mushy like applesauce, but soft. To the point where I could open it up and unfold it. And did you know that when you unfold a fortune cookie, it's the shape of a circle? Wow, who knew? I knew, I knew because I figured that out. So I opened it up and I said, oh my gosh. I said, Chris, I figured it out. I figured it out. When you put a fortune cookie in the heat, the hardest of things can open up and soften, and then you can pour all of your love into that so that you could share it with somebody else. I realize, listen, guys, that the hardest thing, when you put it in the heat, can soften and open up and expand. And then later I would learn that even the hardest of hearts, when you put it in the heat, can become soft and can expand and can open up in order that love could be placed in it so that love could be given to people who need it. It happened to a thief on a cross, hardened criminal, saw a man hanging next to him, 
And he said, this man has done, we deserve what we're getting, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Could it be that he really is who he says he is? And could it be that that love could melt my heart? And it did. That same kind of love took a killer, a murderer, a persecutor of Christians, and on the road to Damascus. It changed his heart and heart so that he became the greatest lover of not only humanity, but the greater lover, greatest lover of people, the man next to him. He not only loved humanity, but he loved people individually. When you see the love of God, when you sit by the fire of God's love, you sit by the cross and you do your measurement there, you do your calculations there, your heart cannot help but to open up. The reason why we don't love And we find it hard to love. The reason we get annoyed with people, the reason why we can't stand people, the reason we can't forgive people is because we move too quickly from the cross of Christ. Can you linger there? You have a hard time loving? This week, hey, do this. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Just sit at the cross. Listen, make a playlist. Mercy, man, never lose the wonder. Play that over and over. Play the wonderful cross over and over. Play once again, over and over and over. Never let me stray from the truth of Calvary. You let your heart, hardened though it may be, warm to the glow and the heat that emanates from the cross. Your heart will open up and you'll be able to love in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It's the greatest commandment. It's so important before all else. So do it. Go to the cross. Be melted. Be warmed by the heat of his love. Let's pray. Let's do that today. I'm not going to tell you to pray for the person that you can't stand. I'm not going to tell you to do anything. Not even tell you to repent right now. Just, Just sit at the cross. And believe that Jesus did that for you. And believe that he died for you. And believe that he shed his blood for you. Not for us, not for the world, not for the, all of humanity, but for you. I believe that infinite love came for you. That Jesus gave up everything so that he could have you. So that you could be his treasure. Just sit at the cross for a few moments. Let's thank him for his love. Let's pray this love into our hearts. Lord, help me to know your love. Functionally, our inability to love is not because you're not a loving person. You are. I I give you that. Functional inability to love others is because we have not understood the love of God for us. You have not understood the love of God for yourself. We love because he loved us first. Let's pray. Sit at the cross. Let's soak under the Niagara Falls of God's love. And all of Niagara Falls coming down to wash over you. It's the unending, ceaseless, never failing love of God. Let's rest under that fountain for a few
this, that the reason I find it hard to love people is because I wonder if it's worth it. I wonder if my investment of time, money, energy, finances, whatever it is, is going to bring back a reward to me. I realize that when I feel that way, looking for people to give me what they were never meant to give to me. Jesus, many years ago, you said to Peter, do you love me? And if you love me, then you would feed my sheep. Then you would care for my sheep. Then you would love my sheep. The reason why we don't love the way we ought to love is because we've forgotten your love. We've looked to other people our hearts with love rather than looking to you. So Father, for that, would you have mercy on us? Your kindness pushes us to repentance, knowing that you love us even when we failed you. And so we come to you asking for renewal, that you'd open up the valves by which we receive your love, open up the channels by which we receive your love, remove the fear and the doubt and begin to pour infinite love into our hearts. For if we receive your love, and if we know your love, and if we know that you've loved us first, it will change the way that we parent. It will change the way that we expect our expectations of our spouse. It will change the way we love people around us. It would change the way we serve our house church members. It would change the way we serve our youth students. It would change the way we relate to our parents and to our teachers and our classmates because we wouldn't be looking to them to give us something that we're lacking. We would be giving to them out of the fullness of what you have given to us. And so help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to receive and to drink deeply, to be warmed by the fire that our hearts might expand, to be filled with love, in order that we might be able to joyfully, gladly, humbly live out this great commandment to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Thank you so much for loving us. We love you because it's the most important thing. But more importantly, we love you because you loved us first. And that love causes us to love others, even those it may be unnatural for us to love. Thank you so much. Jesus, in your name we pray.